Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. Welcome to the February 4th, 2020 edition of Learning Well on Edge Talk Radio. Learning Well is sponsored by the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we'd like to take this opportunity to thank them for their continuing support. I'm your host, Elise Markwim-Johns, and I'd like to take this opportunity also to thank you for joining us this evening. We hope our monthly conversations on our Learning Well program will continue to provide both interesting and practical information for you and your family and friends as you pursue your health and wellness journey in the coming year. We're especially pleased you're with us tonight for a conversation with Dr. R. Douglas Fields. We'll be talking about his new book, Electric Brain, which explores the most recent findings in brain science through a focus on the cutting edge of brain wave research. We'll touch on the fascinating story of the discovery of brain waves, the latest science, and the amazing possibilities this research holds for the future in the fields of medicine and technology, as well as how this new research can help us better understand ourselves. We'll be talking with Dr. Fields in just a few moments, but I'd like to first give you a quick overview of just a few of the courses that are coming up at Normandale Community College's Integrative Health Education Center in the next few weeks. The center offers classes in literally hundreds of areas of health and wellness for anyone interested in exploring these areas and also offers classes for those who wish to proceed to the next level of education in this field. On Friday, February 7th, and Saturday, February 8th from 9 to 4, there will be two energy medicine all-day sessions focusing on energy anatomy centers and energy healing. Participants will gain skills in assessing, clearing, and healing through the chakras, as well as energy assessment, clearing, balancing, and opening to help themselves and others. On Wednesdays from 6 to 8 p.m. from February 19th through March 18th, there will be a naturopathic medicine series. Class members will learn the history, principles, and foundations of naturopathic medicine, as well as an introduction to the modalities used to treat patients, which include hydrotherapy, botanical medicine, physical medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, nutrition, mind-body medicine, as well as homeopathy. On Thursday, February 20th, from 6 to 9, there will be a business boot camp for holistic practitioners class. This course will cover a step-by-step process for starting a business, including business types, laws, taxes, insurance, marketing, financing, as well as business strategies. On Wednesday, February 26th, from 6 to 9, a self-hypnosis class will be offered where participants can learn to put themselves into deep hypnosis to improve self-esteem, reduce stress, improve concentration, quit smoking, and many more things. A Reiki Energy Therapy Level 1 Certificate Program will be available on Saturday, February 29th from 8 to 4 p.m. This course prepares participants to become a certified Reiki Energy Therapy Practitioner. If you'd like more information about these and other classes and programs at the Integrative Health Education Center, I encourage you to call 952-358-8343, or you can email Normandale at www.normandale.edu forward slash ce forward slash classes. Well, we're delighted to have Dr. R. Douglas Fields return for a second time to our Learning Well program. We had a wonderful conversation a few months back about his book, Why We Snap, which you can certainly access on our Learning Well program archives. Dr. Fields is a neuroscientist and international authority on nervous system development and plasticity and an American Association for the Advancement of Science Fellow. He received degrees from UC Berkeley, San Jose State University, and UC San Diego, and held postdoctoral fellowships at Stanford and Yale Universities before joining the National Institutes of Health. He's also an adjunct professor at the Neuroscience and Cognitive Science Program at the University of Maryland, College Park. 
Dr. Fields' scientific research has been featured internationally, including in and on Natural Geographic, ABC's News, ABC News Nightline, and NPR Morning Edition. His research on nervous system plasticity involving non-neuronal, I'm sorry, involving glia cells in which white matter regions in the brain is recognized as pioneering a new non-synaptic mechanism of nervous system plasticity. In 2004, he founded the scientific journal Neuron Glia Biology to advance research on interactions between neurons and glia, and he serves on the editorial boards of several neuroscience journals. In addition to his scientific research, Dr. Fields is also the author of numerous books and magazine articles about the brain for the general reader, including The Other Brain, about brain cells that communicate with, without using electricity, and Why We Snap, about the neuroscience of sudden aggression. Dr. Fields, we so appreciate your being with us tonight. I still think about the conversation we had on our last show about that harrowing experience you and your daughter had being chased through the streets of a European city which you shared with us and which you share in your book, Why We Snap. And more recently, I know you had another harrowing experience while mountain climbing, which we'll talk about a little bit later since it does relate to our discussion this evening. So I'm glad you're safely back with us this evening. Well, thank you. It's a delight to be on your program. Well, first of all, let's get some perspective on this whole history of brainwave study. There was a really interesting person a while back by the name of Dr. Hans, Hans, I should say, Berger, and his early experiments that dealt with brain waves. Could you tell us a little bit just about that history? Sure. That's one of the things that really intrigued me about this subject. I mean, we've all heard of brain waves, uh, but uh, we don't really know what they are. I, I mean, when I say we and the public, I'm speaking about the public in general. Um, we have a very superficial understanding of them. Uh, scientists know that they're one of the most important discoveries in the last century, but um, we don't know the origin of their discovery. Uh, how come the name of the person who discovered them is not well known? Why was there no Nobel Prize? Who was this person? That's what intrigued me, and I went uh, on a um, search to learn about this person. And you're right, his name was Hans Berger. I guess it's Berger. <laughs> My German is terrible. <laughs> Um, and he uh, was a uh, psychiatrist working around the turn of the century in Jena, Germany, former East Germany. And he did his work on mental patients. Um, and I was just intrigued. Uh, what did he think he had discovered? Where did he get the idea that electromagnetic waves would be radiating out of his, these people's heads? And what did other people think about that? And um, basically, who was this guy? So um, I went to Jena, Germany, and uh, went through his notebooks and the artifacts that were left behind. And uh, what I found is that, uh, well, he, he was sort of a uh, checkered figure. And his biography, as biographies or history often are, turned out not to be accurate. Hmm. Um, if you at the time it was thought he we knew that he committed suicide in World War II, and it was thought that he had done that <clears throat> because he was protesting the Nazis. Um, that was that was the official um, line, but uh, my research and the research of others really um, real, uh, revealed that actually he was a Nazi supporter. He was involved in uh, many um, – uh, he was even on the board of forced sterilizations. So I think that's one reason uh, he, he's not in the textbooks. Uh, nonetheless, that's what's really interesting about this interplay between society and history and science. He did make this monumental discovery. Now, how did this person discover it, uh, and what did he think um, – he was he was doing uh, is really interesting because this work began at, at you know at a time when there wasn't when you know electricity and electric electronics were in their infancy uh, and so he 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 had this strange idea that um, psychic energy was different from uh, physical energy but by conservation of 
energy that if you had uh, you couldn't create or lose energy, but there'd be a conversion between the two. So he had the idea that if you had some psychic energy expended doing some emotional or cognitive task, there would be a change in some physical energy, other kind of energy in the brain. The first thing, one of the first things he, he studied was changes in volume of the brain. And he did this by doing studies on people who had had uh, uh, injuries to their head with an opening in the skull and then uh, that had healed, but he was able to analyze how the brain would swell uh, and uh, with the blood flow and by subjecting uh, these mental patients to different kinds of stimuli. He went on from that to stick a thermometer in uh, mental patients' brains and try to record changes in temperature as he challenged them to you know, smell different smells or whatnot. And then finally, he used uh, this really new, new force of energy, electricity, to see if energy, psychic energy, interacted with electrical energy. And that's what he thought he was doing. And he did discover that oscillating waves of electrical energy come out of the brain through the skull and can be picked up by putting electrodes on the top of the head. It's called an EEG. Uh, he made some of the most fundamental discoveries about the characteristics of the human EEG. But his discoveries were dismissed um, by most other scientists. They didn't believe the data. They, uh, they were trying to use reductionist approach with microscopes and tiny electrodes to study the brain. And the idea that this person could take and study the person's whole head at once was absurd. So he did his research in complete secrecy, discovering human brain waves in 1924, and he didn't tell anyone about it until 1929. And when, as I said, once he did, um, the work was dismissed. Hmm. And then his work um, went on to inspire a few other people later on. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the later uh, research that was done and what subsequent discoveries were made at that point? Um, I think what's, what's more interesting is how he was inspired, because where did he get the idea of electricity uh, coming out of the brain? And it's another case of um, science, how science progresses and fits, because while he was the first one to discover brain waves in people, someone had already recorded brain waves in animals, and that was Adolf Beck in 1891. Um, but, um, but that work required exposing the brain. And again, you've got to think, 1891, what kind, this, they were using gas lamps and you know, candlelight and horse-drawn carriages. How, how, do you, how do you record electrical activity in the brain? That was Adolf Beck. Adolf Beck um, was a Polish scientist. He, was, uh, he got caught up in World War I and World War II. He was imprisoned in World War I when Pavlov got him released from Russia, Russian prison. And he went back to, to work. And then when World War II came along, the Nazis came in, tried to take him to a concentration camp, and he committed suicide to avoid that. But uh, people believe that he was the first to d discover brain waves in any kind of animal. turns out that's not even true, and this is even more interesting to me. The first person was Richard Caton, and he was a London physician, and he did it in 1875. Wow. How, how do you record brain waves? You're, talk <laughs> really? you're talking about, you know, a time when electricity flowed through nothing in the natural world. You know, you had to make electricity yourself if you wanted to study it with batteries or something. Um, Richard Caton performed beautiful experiments. He measured uh, brain waves by using uh, a device sort of like putting a wire near a, near a, uh, a compass and had a mirror on, the, on that compass needle that would reflect the beam. Amazing. But he discovered all the basic aspects of brain waves. He announced his discovery in a major journal. He gave big talks. Nobody understood it mm. and completely forgot it for 50 years. So I find that really interesting as a scientist that that's happening today. Somebody has made a discovery. They've announced it. 
And because it's so far ahead of the time, nobody understands it or appreciates it, and it'll be forgotten. Mm-hmm. When when did this become accepted in the scientific community? When did that start to happen? It started to happen in the 30s um, when uh, when a uh, English electrophysiologist who was a Nobel Prize winner uh, did repeat Berger's stories uh, experiments and confirmed that uh, there were these things that they called Berger waves, Berger waves. But um, he kind of mocked them in his own uh, scientific paper by recording the Nobel Prize's winner's own brain waves and the brain waves of a water beetle and showing how they oh. look the same. <laughs> and he <laughs> never did any more work on them again. Uh-huh. Um, and then finally, um, the work you know, slowly became appreciated um, by Herbert Jasper in the United States. And then the first application was in epilepsy. Somebody realized, well, this is a, he, Jasper realized this is a way to diagnose epilepsy. And I'm sure that's what everything everybody thinks about when you hear brain waves is epilepsy. But now we know that they can tell us so much more about the brain. So, Dr. Fields, how exactly would you define brain waves? Hmm. That's a good question. So uh, we all we know now. I mean, we have the perspective of <laughs> looking back uh, in history. We have a lot of knowledge that they didn't have, but we know that neurons uh, operate by sending electrical impulses. We've got you know. Uh, in your cerebral cortex, you've got billions of neurons. And uh, when they fire together, those uh, electrical signals can build and they permeate in electric fields that will permeate the brain. So um, its analogy is the difference between being able to hear a conversation and being able to hear a uh, roar in a stadium. Mm-hmm. So brain waves are like hearing the roar in the stadium. By picking up electrical activity on the skull that gets to the skull from inside the brain, you're losing a lot of detail. Um, you know, you could you could hear you could hear the crowd in a stadium roar when you hit a bat and glean a lot of information about what's happening on the field. So that's kind of what brain waves will tell us. <clears throat> but you can't get the individual conversations or firing of individual neurons. But that's all all you need. It's non-invasive. Um, and then the other thing that's very fascinating about them is that they come in waves. They come in waves of different frequencies, from very slow, from less than a, you know, a one per second, to faster than 60 hertz uh, oscillating voltage in the United States. Uh, and, and so, you know, why is the brain's activity oscillating? That's really fascinating. So, you know, you think about the brain when, you know, we think about the brain and we're taught about it in school like a doorbell, you know, stimulus response, you know, Uh, a signal comes, a receptor comes in. But the brain's activity is always on and the brain's own activity when you're asleep, whatever, is oscillating. And it's oscillating these really fascinating complex ways. Um, Those are your brain waves and, and those waves change with your emotion, your cognitive state, and a number of different aspects of your of your mind and condition. So that's what's so fascinating about them. And I, I, and I uh, when I first introduced you, I also referenced some harrowing experiences you had, and one of them fairly recently related to mountain climbing, that does relate to <laughs> what we're talking about. So can you just tell us a little oh. bit about what happened to you as you were climbing down Mount Rainier and how it does fit into what we're talking oh, about? I see. Sure. I was uh, interested in you know, going back and understanding where Berger got his ideas to study the brain. And as I mentioned, first he looked at pressure changes in the brain, and he did the, that by putting this like a manometer, a fluid-filled tube, uh, sealed to this defect on the head of the person, um, and then he, he would expose this person to different stimuli and look at what you could see is the brain pulsing with the blood. Um, but that method came from somebody else, uh, an Italian, Angelo Mosso. And so I wanted, to, um, I wanted to go visit that person's lab in Turin, Italy, and I did, and I went through his instruments. But Mosso was not into these same kind of issues uh, as Berger. He was interested in how the brain adapts to high altitude, because here he lived in Turin, which is a mountainous area, a lot of climbers, and so he built a high altitude laboratory and would study swelling of the brain as as uh, his subjects would go up, um, suffering high altitude illness. 
Um, and I had it happened that I'd, I'd read an article in a scientific journal that uh, a study using brain imaging, MRI brain imaging, on uh, climbers who come back from Mount Everest found that of 13 climbers who came back from Mount Everest, all of them but one had vis visible brain damage. Mm. Now, none of them knew they had brain damage. Um, and this is non-reversible, I assume. Non-reversible. Um, and, uh, you know, climbers know hypoxia, lack of oxygen is bad for the brain. You can die at high altitude uh, by a number of conditions like haste, cerebral edema. But these people didn't have any of the severe uh, high-altitude effects. Anyway, I, I found that very interesting, and he did further studies and found that the same thing happens at lower altitude. So, you know, as a scientist and a climber, I uh, pitched to Outside Magazine that I would get my brain scanned, go climb Mount Rainier, and um, then get it scanned afterwards to show that you could uh, climb safely without damaging your brain, because your body will adapt, but you have to give it time to acclimatize. And most people, many people, uh, especially on guided trips, uh, try to bag a summit in, in, in a very short period, a weekend or something, and they suffer this, this, these ill effects. Mm -hmm. So they like that idea. Um, I couldn't get anybody to scan my brain. <laughs> because <laughs> So the whole idea that I was stuck. It turns out that um, there's some ethical problem with... Uh, putting someone in a situation where they could damage themselves because just because it would be interesting to study the damage, you can't mm -hmm. do that. Nobody would do it. So I called the, the, the scientist who had done the study. He was in uh, Spain, and he uh, agreed to scan my brain uh, after climbing, and uh, so that's what I did. I went and climbed Mount Rainier with my son, uh, Dylan, and then went to Zaragoza, Spain, and got my brain scanned to to see the effects of high altitude on it. But what you're asking about is, you know, when you when you climb, um, it's not uncommon to have a slip. And I describe kind of a of a narrow narrow escape where I tripped, caught a cramp on on my pants or something, ice, and tripped and took a header screaming down this uh, slope. And that's what happens in alpine climbing is you get going so fast um, that you can't stop. Anyway, I described that in the book. Obviously, it turned out okay. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, I'm I'm delighted you're back here with us, and <laughs> I was also <laughs> glad to to learn when we were talking a little bit earlier that you're not doing quite as much climbing. That <laughs> um, you also one of the things I loved about your book too, Doctor Fields, was you really get into sort of the practical application of what this science could mean. And there's one particular story that you shared about a young person named Joey who was autistic and the new and revolutionary approach that helped him. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, this this was a, um, a, a client of, of uh, a neurofeedback practitioner, Jessica Ure, um who um, – this uh, young boy was autistic and had the usual symptoms um, and had been through the gamut of trying all the other sorts of remedies um, with no, you know, no real success. Um, and what they do is neurofeedback um, to treat a wide range of, of emotional and uh, psychiatric uh, conditions um, and people are familiar with neurofeedback, but it just runs the gamut. Now, I didn't know much about neurofeedback. I met Jessica Ewer, uh just by chance. She was a delightful person, and she allowed, uh, you know, allowed me uh, to learn about her work and, you know, some of her clients like like uh, Joey, who after this neurofeedback session had tremendous improvement. But she also uh, let me experience. Um, uh, neurofeedback for myself, and it was really fascinating. Now, what's different is, um, you know, you can buy all kinds of neurofeedback devices uh, since the 60s, <laughs> and uh, they work in various ways. Uh, but what she does, and others like her do, is use EEG analysis and measure um, the brain wave activity in a person's mind, brain, while they sit doing nothing. They collect all this activity and then send it away to a neurologist and then to another specialist to analyze this activity. Um, then based on that finding, they will then prescribe neurofeedback. So it's a completely different approach. And what 
that approach has found is a remarkable number of people with uh, psychiatric conditions also have uh, real neurological problems like micro seizures that show up on the EEG, EEG analysis. So there's this organic um, neurological basis for their uh, psychological complaints. And if you didn't have that information, you know, the doctor might even give exactly the wrong drug. So people know about seizures. You have a seizure and a person loses consciousness and has convulsion and everything. That's the extreme. You can have micro seizures, um, no outward signs, but there's, a, but there's this activity where the brain waves in one part neural circuit in the brain will just uh, become synchronized, high active, and that circuit is now impaired and not able to behave normally. So that's one, one uh, important aspect of that approach. But uh, what they do is they find um, uh, um, deviations from um, brainwave responses, characteristics from a normal population, so-called normal population. And um, many of these deviations are now diagnostic um, for, for particular kinds of disorders. But then they will uh, devise a program to change that kind of brainwave activity back to a more normal state, and that's done by neurofeedback. So now they, they take and put you back in and uh, measure your brain waves, and you get a tone reward when your brain wave pattern shifts in the direction that they want. So for example, they, tried, they wanted me to develop more delta wave, I think, activity. Um, and um, you get a reward when, when your brain shifts that way. And remarkably, your brain figures out what's going on. There's no, like, I thought it would be like a reward in a video game or something. That, no, it's completely automatic. Um, your brain figures it out and um, changes your brainwave pattern. Mm. So it does work. Um, and, you know, people use this for um, treating uh, a number of disorders, especially experimentally. And it's not really, um, you know, hasn't reached where it's wide, widely used, can be widely used clinically, but certainly and experimentally it's being used. When people learn how um, to operate prosthetics for brain-computer interfaces, which we'll probably talk about, neurofeedback is how they learn to make their brain wave make the right kind of change that the computer's going to understand that says, oh, make a fist. And you met with Jessica Yore and her colleague at, at the Virginia Center for Neurofeedback, and I'm assuming there are not many other places like that, or am I wrong? Or is this something that's becoming a little bit more widespread in terms of practical application and the numbers of people who are working on this? No, there's a there's a society, um, and you know they have or, uh, there's licensing. So um, I would say one th one thing is that the research is way ahead of the practical applications mm, right okay. now. So it's not it's not like you know it's not usually covered by insurance and that sort of thing. Um, and the research has completely you know has the best equipment, and you, they can use functional magnetic resonance imaging, you know, brain scans and kinds of analysis that you know a doctor will never have or a practitioner would couldn't have but what what's happening is this science is showing that neurofeedback does work it's also, and that EEG analysis can be used not only to uh, diagnose neurological illnesses but to uh, diagnose psychiatric uh, illnesses personality um, and actually the unique aspects of an individual's mind how your brain is wired, what it's good at, what it's bad at, um, and and do this all non-invasively. So um, that that's one thing that's, that's very exciting um, is that we're beginning to interface with the brain and understand the brain and treat the brain through electricity. Wow, that has such implications for education and and career development and all kinds of things. It's amazing. Well, Would yeah, you... it's a little bit scary because <clears throat> I went to one research researcher, uh, Chantelle Pratt. I went to a lot of different uh, researchers, but um, she claims that she can, uh, you know, read your brain waves for five minutes while you do nothing, let your mind wander, and then predict uh, how well you can learn a second language. Hmm. So I went and did that, and, and she told me it was a good thing that I lived in the United States. I'm afraid <laughs> she's right. 
Um, but it was very creepy, I have to say. Um, other researchers can measure a child's uh, brainwave activity, and there are other ways. You don't have to use uh, you don't have to use electrodes. This one uses uh, it's called near infrared spectroscopy, but it's a head headband type device that just uses a laser infrared laser, like in a remote control, and it can sense electrical activity in the brain. And uh, anyway, can analyze how a child's brain processes the sounds of real words and, and nonsense words, and then predict how well that person, that child will read in one year. So what we're learning is that as your mind sits quietly wandering, the activity that goes on in your brain begins to reveal how your brain is wired. And there are particular networks that become activated in the brain when you sit and do nothing. And um, by analyzing the features of how electricity flow through the brain in these different networks, um, great insight can be gained into um, personality, IQ, um, whether you're good at reading, um, if you have um, you know, a psychiatric or neuro even neurological illnesses. So it's very, very, um, I think, uh, a new world where we can know what kind of brain you have. Um, and then, you know, that may be scary to people, but um, to my mind it's not that much different from a cholesterol test saying that, you know, you're, gonna, you're at a risk of a stroke. Um, somebody can measure your brain waves and say you're at risk for dyslexia. Well, and I imagine there are people doing research on whether this is genetic. I mean, do you inherit those functions from from your parents, or is this something that, you know, as you say, it can be, it can, you can change your brain wave. So it, it really presents, you know, it's almost like that whole discussion about, you know, what what kinds of health risks do you inherit, and how much does your actual environment and what you do and your lifestyle make a difference. It almost seems like there's some parallel to that. Oh, absolutely. Like all things in biology, it's a mixture of three things, genetics, experience or environment, and uh, chance. You know, <clears throat> And um, both genetics and experience have tremendous effects on how the brain wires up. Mm. Um, and um, you know, so it's not one or the other. It's the two working together. A good example are, are the Romanian orphans. You remember the... Oh, yeah. Chesco regime, where they had the terrible treatment, isolation of those orphans. Those studies have now gone on for years and years. Some of those kids stayed in the orphanage, and some of them went to foster homes. They've been followed, and their brains are different um, in those two groups of children. Uh, and the children who are still in the orphanages have uh, abnormal brain waves, uh, they have um, abnormal brain, uh, they have you know, differences in, in their brain uh, structure seen by brain imaging. But their brain waves are different. Um, they're more characteristic of an immature state. However, after those children were put in foster homes, the brain waves have come back to normal. So mm. it, it, it is, you know, I always say, that what's the purpose of this organ in our head? It's, it's to allow us to interact with our environment. And so to do that, the brain changes. It interacts with the environment based on its interaction with the environment, and that's that's the basis for neurofeedback or, um, or you know, physical therapy, all of which uh, really do change the brain, not only its function but its structure, its wiring. Yeah. And what the question that immediately springs to my mind is, does that have to happen by a certain age for that to change, or, you know, the, you know, they've always said that, for instance. There are certain ways that you can, as you're when you're young, if you have problems with your eyes, you can do exercises. But at a certain point, when you get to be an adult, those exercises won't do any good. So right. wonder you're talking wonder about the if, critical critical period, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's definitely true. <clears throat> you know that studies uh, Nobel Prize winning work on kittens that if they're blind for a two week period after birth, and you, then you re take off the patch of the eye, they could never see because they needed to be able to see to wire the brain and the eye together. It turns out that we interpreted those experiments on animals too dogmatically. Um, certainly, uh, the plasticity, how much brain change can go on in a child is enormously greater than in an adult. I mean, we know that. But um, that doesn't mean that it's black and white, and this plasticity goes on throughout life. 
a really good example, which just was stunning. I met a number of pair of quadriplegics who have brain-computer interfaces, implants in their brain. We may talk about this later, but I just want to stick the point of plasticity to your question here about, you know, can, can we change and to the extent to which we change. Um, this one uh, young man, Eagle Scout, I went swimming, uh, you know, at, at the beach and dove under and, and, and hit a hidden sandbank, broke his neck, became a quadriplegic. So he had surgery uh, just to contribute to science. These people are so courageous. I just admire them. Um, and because they, they didn't expect to get better, they're just trying to help others. Anyway, a brain implant that would um, interpret um, the brain's uh, intentions in moving a limb. I mean, brain's still telling the hand to move, but there's no signal going down the spinal cord. Then what the computer does, with, in Ian's case, was he had a like an armband that would stimulate all the muscles in his arm and hand and allow his hand to move. And, and you know, now he could grip a bottle and pour and, and do all these things. And can you imagine this person for three years had never seen his hand move, and now he thinks, uh, make a fist, and his hand makes a fist. It, it, it's just, you know, it's biblical. You know? So, But the thing that was more surprising, and it surprised his doctors and everywhere else, is um, after they took off, after he did this for, uh, you know, throughout the program, they took off the prosthetic device that was stimulating his hand to move in response to the computer brain interface, and now he could move his hand without the interface. Wow. So I met him. Um, I walked to, up to him. Here's a quadriplegic, and he reaches out and takes my business card with his hand before would never work. Mm -hmm. And so what had happened is by learning to work these muscles and this, these nerves, somehow, uh, you know, the brain uh, had found a way around the damage to make his uh, limb work again. Um, and if they hadn't done that, of course, you know, the muscles atrophy and, and, uh, and, and it just goes from bad to worse. But that that's, I think, the most remarkable extent of how plastic the brain is. Now, that's changed everything. Now, they're beginning to st stimulate, uh, make uh, spinal cord patients walk and do spinal cord stimulation because they understand now that this activity can actually change the brain and, and overcome tremendous um, uh, problems. The, uh, the potential of that is, is kind of amazing when you think about it. It's outstanding. Well, you also went to visit uh, Howard Poisner, who's a neuroscientist at the Supercomputer Center at the University of California in San Diego, who's studying how our memories are formed. And his work is funded, as I think you said in your book, by the U.S. Navy, which hopes to use these advances in neuroscience to help them train personnel and improve individual performance. Um, and the approach is to place people in computer-generated virtual reality and watch their brain waves as they explore. And you actually had the opportunity to, to experience this, didn't you? It's fascinating research. You know, we have <clears throat> this is an example of what, what excites me about brain waves is we're getting at a more sophisticated level of how the brain works. So uh, Poisoner's interested in learning. How does the brain learn? You know, we have these ideas that go back to Pavlov, you know, ring, ring the bell and give the reward, you know, punishment reward. We'll link these two neurons together. Um, that's really simplistic. Um, we don't learn that way. Uh, all the time. I mean, you just walk out. How do you learn where things are in your environment? You, you you walk around and you learn. Nobody's rewarding you. No one's telling you anything. You know how do you how do you learn about life from reading in a novel and things like that? That's called implicit learning. So how does that work? And it's not going to be as simple as you know Pavlovian conditioning. So um, the idea is that brain waves couple together information uh, by resonance. Um, so, if, you know, what is a memory? A memory ties together diverse aspects of past experience, you know, sight, sound, smells, your emotions related to that uh, event. Um, you know, those are processed in different parts of the brain. How do they all come together at once in a memory? And, and one of the most, you know, best examples of that is learning your environment. Um, you just walk around and, and now you know, you know, how to get from here to there. 
So he realized the only way to, and he, he thought brainwaves had had to do that by coupling together all this information. Um, so uh, he he thought the only way to do that is you have to have the body moving. You can't just be slapping a joystick on a computer program or something because that's just not how the brain learns. It doesn't activate the circuitry in the brain that is activated when you walk around in the environment. So what he did is um, uh, went into this room, this all-dark room. He puts on uh, an EEG cap on you so that he can measure your brain waves. Then he put on virtual reality goggles. And instantly I was transformed in, <coughs> excuse me, inside the uh, ship of uh, a Navy ship because it was funded by the Navy. They want to understand learning and they want to be able to, um, you know, uh, train uh, Navy personnel uh, and, and select Navy personnel who are ideally suited. So they're trying to understand how the brain works um, and, and how to optimize learning. Anyway, suddenly I'm transported inside this aircraft carrier, and it is real. Everywhere I look, I see, you know, I see jets. I see the floor when I look down. I couldn't believe it. And so I'm wandering around in this room. I, I've never seen virtual reality before. That was my first time. And he's analyzing my brain waves the whole time. So what what he had set up is you walk into a storage room, again, virtual reality, and there are a bunch of bubbles on racks. And he said, you're looking for a green bubble. So I see a green bubble, and then I pop it. And inside was a wrench. And he says, go find another one. So then I wander around, and I, I find another one. I pop it, and inside is a fire extinguisher. And what he can see in the brain waves responding to all of these cues. So then when he brings back people the next time, he has them do the same thing. But he cleverly switched the wrench and the fire extinguisher. So now the person walks over, pops the green bubble where the um, uh, that had concealed the wrench, and now the fire extinguisher's in there. And he, he got a unique brainwave response. So <clears throat> instantaneously, the brain knew even before the person did, had learned where these objects were in the room and that it, it was in the wrong place. Um, so that, that's the fascinating kind of research he's doing. So it's, it's leading to a, a deeper understanding of the complexity of how the brain processes information, complex information, and stores information and recalls information uh, <clears throat> by brain waves, coupling together populations of neurons across diverse regions of the brain. Um, it's really fascinating. But to, to give an example, um, you know, you can recognize a face of a colleague at work, but you might see that colleague, that colleague might be at Starbucks and you won't recognize them. Mm -hmm. And that's because <clears throat> those involve two different parts of the brain. The hippocampus is about location and the prefrontal cortex gives context and everything. Uh, it's to information that that the hippocampus is is coding. Well, it turns out that waves oscillating in these two parts of the brain become synchronized. It's like two parts of an orchestra. The like the, the oboes begin playing with the clarinets, um, and so that's what unites, uh, brings together these two aspects of memory. Now I must say, this is cutting edge science. Not all people believe this in the field. So neuroscientists are split on what brain waves are. <clears throat> Some think brain waves are just noise of brain working, and they have no function. Um, other half the scientists think they're how, uh, brain waves are how the brain works at the most sophisticated level, um, and you know that is really why I wrote the book is to to share this pivotal moment in history, science in action. You know how science tries to figure out problems. Uh, you know, people read textbooks, and you know it's like Moses brought it down, you know, from the mountain. Here's the here's the way it works. The reality is so much different. Uh, when you're really at cutting edge research, you never know if what you think is correct. You know, you don't know if you've reached the right conclusion. Part three of your book is. I think so particularly fascinating because you're talking about harnessing brainwave power and you focus on how the understanding of the electric brain that you've learned from the latest research from around the world can be used by any of us and how brainwave research will 
eventually change the world. Um, I'm wish, and we have so little time left, but I hope we can dig into a few of these examples because one of the things you talked about was um, mind control, which involves brain and computer interface, or BCI. Uh, and you worked with a uh, Spanish neuroscientist by the name of Jose Manuel Rodriguez Delgado. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that work? Right. Uh, thanks for mentioning that, because I, I, I've divided the book in three ways. The first is discovery of brainwaves, and that, that's just the history. The second part is what I was trying to get across here, science in action. Are brainwaves how the brain works, or is it noise? And there, um, that's where you get into the various evidence, um, like Poisoner's research and you know correlations between brainwaves and consciousness and sleep and these kinds of things. And then the reader can try to make their own mind, um, and that's fascinating. But And then part three, there nobody questions that analyzing brainwaves has enormous practical value. So whether or not, you know, the brainwaves are making you, um, making your mind do this or not, by monitoring brainwaves and by changing brainwaves, you can affect uh, behavior and function. You can diagnose uh, characteristics uh, of the brain, innate capabilities, diseases, disorders, and you can treat them. And one of the ways to treat them is with direct stimulation to modulate neuronal firing or to modulate uh, brainwave activity. There are a lot of ways to do that, and we're getting a lot of non-invasive ways, but the early one, you mentioned Jose Delgado, is the classic one because he implant, he did a lot of this research in the, in the 50s, um, and uh, it it alarmed the public because they were concerned about mind control. He put electrodes in animals, and, and he could, by stimulating different circuits, make these animals do various behaviors. Um, he did the same thing in people. You could stimulate the right part of a person's brain and send them into a fit of rage. You could stimulate another part of the brain, and the person would uh, be overcome with uh, sexual desire and, 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 and offer to marry the the scientist. Um, and one of his classic experiments was he stopped a raging bull by stimulating an electrode in part of the brain. That research uh, um, was pretty popular for a while and, and was being used therapeutically to treat all kinds of uh, psychiatric conditions and seemed much better than drugs. You know, you take an SSRI or some other drug, it affects the whole body yet there may just be one neural circuit that needs help. So that's not good. The other approach was psychosurgery, um, taking out part of the brain, uh, prefrontal lobotomy, lobotomy is an example of that, and I'm afraid most people know about that terrible episode. Um, there's ECT, shock therapy, which is still very effective, the most effective mechanism for treating chronic depression it can't be treated in any other way, but we don't know how it works. It seems just really too crude to stimulate the whole brain into a seizure and have the brain come out of it somehow better. So the idea that you could stimulate very specific parts of the brain and change and cure the psychiatric problem is what drove all this. But um, it did scare people, and it, uh, the idea of mind control, of course, that was completely overblown. But there were some experiments that were kind of unethical, definitely by modern standards, experiments uh, trying to change a person's sexual orientation, a homosexual man's orientation by Robert Heath, um, by stimulating the pleasure center of the brain. Um, and this work just got stopped. But it's coming back because mental illness is a terrible, terrible problem. And nobody is satisfied with our treatments. Um, you know, the treatments are life-saving, but they're not good enough. Um, and so many people are using brain stimulation now because it's, it, it, it was sort of resurged after it was used uh, for treating Parkinson's with a great deal of success. But now it, it, brain stimulation is being used to treat all kinds of psychological disorders, um, and neurological disorders, and it can be very effective. Uh, but it's actually proceeding kind of, you know, trial and error, because uh, we don't really understand 
um, you know, the neurological, biological basis of, you know, schizophrenia. Nonetheless, the doctors are finding that they, that they feel compelled because they can help their patients by using this brain stimulation. So that's where we're going with brain stimulation um, and hopefully going to even better methods. There's, you can stimulate neurons with uh, ultrasound. You can use tra transmit, uh, transcranial magnetic pulses, um, a number of, you know, of new methods to, to stimulate the brain and be more s selective in, uh, you know, in, in, in correcting the neurological problem. And you share a couple of really interesting stories in that regard about, there's one Nancy Smith story. Um, she was in a head-on collision with an 18-wheeler. And then a story about Nathan, who was the first person to have four implants in his brain. Can you share a little bit about oh, yeah. those stories? <clears throat> these, are two, these are examples of two people that have uh, brain implants to work prosthetic devices. Um, and um, just, you know, remarkable people. And, um, you know, Nancy Smith was... Uh, school teacher and a, and a Girl Scout leader, and she was leading a scout group and got hit by 18-wheeler, and, you know, life changed in a, in a flash, and uh, she became a quadriplegic. And just to hear her description, because she's a teacher and she just you can describe things very well, you know, she completely immobilized she's, as she's speaking uh, in a, you know, a wheelchair that she can't move any limbs. <clears throat> but describing just the humiliation of not being able to do anything anymore. You can't scratch your nose. You can't take care of bodily functions. It's just humiliating. And, you know, it all changed in a second. Um, her career, her ability to be a mother, all these things were at risk for her. Um, and for anybody who has, you know, sudden spinal cord injury and a car accident, um, but she has this brain implant to operate a computer now with her mind. And she is now able to, you know, operate a computer through her brain waves, interfacing with a computer. And, you know, that opens all kinds of opportunities, uh, some degrees of independence, some ability to work on the Internet. Uh, she was a, a musician at one time, and she can now play the piano uh, with her mind. Um, Nathan Copeland is the same kind of thing, really remar remarkable guy, and I think people may know um, this, is, this is the gentleman who shook Obama's hand with a robotic arm. Mm. So he, he has uh, implants in his brain that control a computer, that control a robotic arm. It's not attached to his body. Um, but Nathan's got two implants, one to control movement, the other to receive sensation. So there are sensors in the fingertips of this robotic hand. So when Obama comes over, he's, um, Nathan was able to extend this robotic arm, open it up, grasp Obama's hand, and he could feel Obama's hand hmm. because of the sensors stimulating his brain. Um, so th these, um, the, this technology is, is advancing rapidly, and it's transforming uh, the lives of many people. I have to ask you before we run out of time about Elon Musk of Tesla and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook who are investing in brain-to-brain -brain communication research which would allow brain-to-brain -brain interface devices to communicate over the Internet. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you learned about this and your thoughts about it? Well, it's wonderful to see you know, an industrial-scale uh, power putting into the techno technology a brain-computer interface. And that's really welcome. Um, new approaches, the best, you know, the best talent and money to make these new devices. Um, there's no question, though, that uh, the hype um, far exceeds the reality. Um, mm. um, and I, I think that um, the problem here is that it's not just technology. The biology is a big, the unknown biology is a big hurdle. But we're going to overcome that. But, um, you know, you hear Elon Musk saying we're going to, you know, we're going to put a super intelligence third layer to the human brain and you'll communicate over the Internet. You'll never type again and all these things. That's, 
very far in the future. <laughs> um, well, but but I, I also say that, that there are new methods, and and they they do have uh, they do have applications. I interviewed Thomas Reardon, who has a, uh, a unique way to do brain computer interface. And after the book was uh, in press, uh, Mark Zuckerberg bought his company, so mm. people can read about that. But if I can give an example of the complexity of the biological problem I'm talking about, Musk says his device, which is called Neuralink, will have a thousand, maybe three thousand electrodes, and so it'll be so much better than what we have now, which is 128 electrodes, and that's great. That's true, and that'll be really helpful to take information out of the brain. But when you start to put information into the brain, you run into some biology problems. Which you know, which neuron are you going to stimulate? And is this neuron in your brain the same one that's in my brain, mm. in the same location? No. Furthermore, the complexities are staggering. If you, instead of 3,000 neurons, let's just take 300 neurons in a circuit and simplify it to on and off, which is a simplification. So these 300 neurons can be either on, turned on, or turned off. Well, um, if you take um, 2 raised to the 300, you get a number that's so enormous of possibilities, it's more than all the atoms in the universe. Um, so I think it's kind of staggering and gives you some appreciation of the complexity of the human brain. What a great note to leave on. <laughs> that is absolutely so appreciated, all of your time tonight and for sharing your work with us this evening. And I so encourage our listeners to check out Dr. Field's latest book, Electric Brain. It's absolutely fascinating reading. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Well, thank you. Well, before we close, I just want to let all of you know about our upcoming programs. We have some really interesting guests coming up in addition to our discussion tonight. I'm very excited that next uh, our next Learning Well program will feature Dr. Howard Friedman. He will join us on March 3rd. His newest book is Longevity Project, Surprising Discoveries for Health and Long Life from the Landmark Eight-Decade Study. His book is based on the most extensive study of longevity ever conducted and really shows us what is really important and what really impacts our health and lifespan, including friends, family, personality patterns, and work. So I so hope you can join us next month on March 3rd. And on April 7th, our guest will be John Leland. In 2015, he was an award-winning journalist who set out on behalf of the New York Times to meet members of America's fastest-growing age group. And he anticipated learning of challenges and loneliness and deterioration of the body and mind, but the elders he met took him in an entirely different direction. We'll be discussing the book he wrote based on these experiences titled Happiness is a Choice, which is a fascinating look into how we can live better. And our guest on May 5th will be Dr. Alan Gaby. He's a past president of the American Holistic Medical Association and is author of a 30-year project called Nutritional Medicine, which is a textbook. And over the past six years, he's worked on completing this updated second edition of Nutritional Medicine. And we hope you can also join us for our June 2nd program, which will feature Dr. Elena Villanueva. She's an internationally recognized health coach and crusader for ending the global mental health crisis and educating the public and other health professionals that mental health conditions are actually brain health issues. And when the underlying causes are found, the brain health conditions can be reversed. Very much ties in with what we've discussed this evening. And I also want to let you know that you can access past conversations on learning well with guests such as best-selling author Dr. Michael Gregor, author of How Not to Die, and Dr. Robin Smith, author of Cells Are the New Cure by simply Googling Edge Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. In closing, I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. R. Douglas Fields, and also Normandale Community College and their Integrative Health Education Center. And if you enjoy our Learning Well program, we encourage you to let others know about our conversations on Learning Well. Until we come again your way on March 3rd, I wish you much health and happiness and hope to see you then. Take care. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.